This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include Mature Themes You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 264. Greetings, listeners. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fiction and tell you the latest on my writing endeavors. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today, I'm bringing you Chapter 5 in my Metamorcine novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Daniel Sharabi is trapped in a life he doesn't want. As a telepath of the Psy Collective, he gains the benefits of communal life in the Metamore Hive. His education, health care, food, and shelter are all paid for by collective funds, and the Hive's elite warriors, veterans of a secretive partnership with the Empire's Military Intelligence Directorate, provide protection from the many dangers of the outside world. But those benefits come at a steep price. The community's hive mind has absolute authority over the most intimate details of its members' personal lives, including who is allowed to breed with whom. As a male telepath and psychic healer of mediocre talent, Daniel was judged unsuitable for the hive's eugenics program, which is trying to breed the strongest size they can get. After growing up in a hive creche and attending university together, Daniel and his longtime girlfriend Rebecca were separated by hive mandate. Rebecca was placed in a breeding cell with a group of their mutual friends from high school, while Daniel was assigned to a bachelor cell with a group of other low-powered males. Daniel must work for the hive until their investment in him has been repaid. Only then will he be allowed to leave the collective, if he chooses, and make a life for himself among the mundanes. Daniel recently discussed his predicament with his sparring partner, the MID liaison Victor Hincavos. Victor is similarly chafing against the Hive's restrictions. Though he is a powerful telekinetic, and thus valuable as a sperm donor, he has not been allowed to actually form a breeding cell, apparently because they haven't found a group of compatible women to join him. Victor thinks the Hive is stringing him along in order to prolong his military service, which is extremely valuable for their partnership with MID. He told Daniel that if he ever wants to make a life for himself, he's going to have to be willing to step outside the boundaries the Hive has given him. When he's ready to do that, Victor said cryptically, Daniel should give him a call. Daniel then went back home to his bachelor cell, where he spoke with his two roommates. Nathan is a conspiracy theorist and a computer cracker, who points out a critical weakness in the Hive's structure. The decisions are made by a group mind, consisting of all the adult telepaths, 
each of whom is bringing their hang-ups, foibles, and emotions into the mix. The Hive likes to think its decisions are logical, based on rationally weighing all the inputs of its members, but you can't get a rational product from irrational components. A strong personality can easily sway weaker ones to its point of view, regardless of whether its ideas are good for the community. Daniel has been told that his and Rebecca's separation was for the greater good of the collective, but that might not actually be true. Daniel's other roommate, Kevin, gave him a perspective that was less abstract and more personal. Kevin is a non-telepath. Only a weak talent for pyrokinesis qualifies him for membership in the collective at all. For the moment, though, he's decided that the benefits of being in the hive outweigh the costs. He tells Daniel that he needs to decide what's most important to him, starting a family of his own, or keeping the safety and security he has now. Leaving the collective is possible, but it will involve hard work and taking risks. Alternatively, he can play it safe, stay where he is, and try to find a way to be happy in his current circumstances. As Daniel left Kevin, he knew he had some thinking to do. He had to decide what he really wanted, and how badly he wanted it. He would be meeting Victor again for sparring next Tuesday, and he intended to have an answer for him. Making the Cut A Novel of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Laster. Chapter 5 May 7th All right, let's hear it. Victor looked up at Daniel from behind his desk, his eyebrows raised in an innocent expression. Hear what? Whatever it is you're planning to get out from under the hive's decision, Daniel said, crossing his arms and leaning back against the wall of Victor's office. You obviously have something in mind, and you think you need me to do it. Otherwise you wouldn't have said anything. Victor looked into Daniel's eyes for a long moment, then raised a hand and gestured. The door swung shut and locked itself, and the chair in front of the desk slid back half a meter. Have a seat, he said. Daniel sat, crossing his arms again as he did so. Victor sat back in his chair and steepled his fingers. About three weeks from now, he said, a skyship will be departing Algra and coming to Metamore City. On board will be a small package containing merchandise that has been purchased by my client. Who's the client? Daniel asked. One of Metamore's wealthier businessmen. He's working through a third party to keep the purchase anonymous. The contents of the package are extremely valuable, and if it came out that he was involved, it's likely that it would draw unwanted attention. All right, so he's bringing in the package. What does he want us to do? Play delivery boy? Essentially, Victor agreed, either not catching the sarcasm or ignoring it. The goods are of a sensitive nature. They won't appear on the ship's manifest. The client wants us to make the package disappear before the customs agents secure the cargo and then deliver it to a secure, private facility elsewhere in the city. 
Daniel nodded, frowning. A smuggling job. Victor's lip quirked. Exactly. Daniel spread his hands. So what's the catch? Why not hire professional runners for this? We do have a couple of runners, Victor said. A face to get us inside, and a courier to get the package clear. But our client expects some other factions to make a play for it, and in that case, things might get messier than a runner's willing to deal with. He's sending me as a security consultant, along with a few mercs for added muscle, just in case. Daniel frowned again. And me? Victor shrugged. The client is providing gear for one additional agent of my choosing. You're a good fighter. You can do emergency healing if things turn bad. And I trust you. He leaned forward over the table and lowered his voice. I know you understand what it's like to get screwed by the elders. I figure you're not going to rat me out for keeping the money from this job to myself, instead of putting it into the collective funds. But you're also a fellow teep, and that counts for a lot. He smirked. These other guys the boss is hiring don't like me. I'm a spooky, and that means they don't trust me. It's mutual. I need someone I can count on to watch my back. Daniel leaned back in the chair, nodding slowly. How much is he offering for the job? A hundred thousand marks, Victor said evenly with an equal amount in hazard pay if we see combat and still get the goods through. I'll cut you twenty percent of that. Daniel's mind spun through the possibilities. Twenty thousand marks wasn't enough to set him for life, but it would cover most of the balance on his student loans. Thirty percent, he countered. Twenty-five, and I let you keep the gear. Daniel nodded and extended his arms, palm up. Done. Victor clasped arms with him, then slid back his chair and stood. Daniel did likewise. I'll contact you a week before the op and give you the particulars on where and when, Victor said. He looked at Daniel and narrowed his eyes. Until then, I advise that you avoid any deep gestalts with anyone. If even a hint of this gets out, the deal's off. I know. Daniel bowed briefly then opened the door and walked out, passing through the Somnock and onto the campus grounds. Well, this is it, he thought. He'd agreed to take part in an illegal smuggling operation. The threat of violent opposition was considerable. He was conspiring with one of Westfall's top instructors to withhold funds that, by the rules of collective society, would be the rightful property of the entire hive. He would have to spend the next three weeks deceiving the other members of his bachelor cell. But if he pulled it off, he'd have the resources to start a life away from the hive's control. And maybe, just maybe, Rebecca still loved him enough to come with him. I guess, he thought, that I know what really matters to me. May 25th Daniel and Victor met their contacts in the back room of a small Pyralian restaurant on the third level of the Valley South Borough. The place specialized in authentic cuisine, unlike most of the mainstream Pyralian chain restaurants at the lower levels. 
the premium grana cheeses, prosciutto hams, and fine wines used here in one day's business cost more than those restaurants would earn in a week. Victor showed a business card to the capo cameriere at the entrance, and they were quickly ushered into the private room. Unlike the rest of the restaurant, the meeting room was brightly lit. A long table with seating for about twenty filled most of the space, though only half its length had been set for dinner. The remaining surface area was taken up by stacks of maps, blueprints, and technical equipment, which Daniel was sure they'd be hearing about soon enough. There were six other people in the room already, in addition to the waiters who were bringing out the food. Four of them were big, muscular men who looked out of place in their ill-fitting suits. Mercs, if Daniel had to guess. One of them had green-gray skin and pointed ears that marked him as a breed. The others were humans of varying ethnic extraction. They stood in the far corner of the room, talking to each other in low voices. One of them noticed as they came in and nodded to Victor, who returned the gesture. An attractive, athletic-looking girl sat near the head of the table, her feet propped up on the chair next to her. She looked to be in her late teens, and seemed even more out of place than the Mercs. Her hair was a wild poof that stuck out in all directions like a lion's mane, mousy brown with shocks of gold running through it. Her facial features were fine and angular, almost elven in appearance, though her ears weren't pointed enough for her to have any measurable amount of elf blood in her. She was dressed in a black leather jacket and camo green cargo pants, with a hot pink raglan top that clung tightly to her chest and displayed her distinct lack of cleavage. As they came in, she was balancing one of the table knives point first on her finger, but upon spotting Victor and Daniel, she flipped it lazily up into the air and caught it one-handed. Daniel stared, completely impressed, and the girl cocked her head at him and gave him a lopsided grin. Ah, Victor, excellent. Daniel turned to the source of the voice and saw the room's last occupant. He was a handsome, slender man, with golden hair that fell around his shoulders. Not merely blonde, but golden a brilliant metallic color that shimmered like liquid sunshine. Daniel had never seen hair that color before, and he figured that it must have been spellcrafted. The man wore a tan suit jacket over a collarless white shirt that showed off his abs, and he had a gold chain around his neck that matched his hair perfectly. He smiled broadly as he came up and clasped arms with Victor. "'You're just in time for dinner,' he said." His accent and mannerisms told Daniel that he must be a Skywalker, a member of Metamore's upper class. Hello, Evan, Victor said, giving the other man a brief smile. I'd like to introduce you to my business partner, Daniel Sharabi. He turned to Daniel and gestured. Daniel, this is Evan Salindi. Evan looked Daniel up and down. His eyes widened slightly and Daniel could see now that they were a striking lavender color, another obvious sign of spellcrafted body modification. A slow grin spread across Evan's face, and... Daniel blinked, startled. Evan's body and facial features shifted, changing right before his eyes. In the space of a few seconds, the tall, slender man became a tall, slender, and stunningly gorgeous woman. 
Her generous breasts strained against the white fabric of her shirt, but her suit still fit her perfectly. Spellweave fabric, obviously. She smiled seductively at Daniel. Oh, Victor, darling, he's beautiful, she purred. Victor smirked. My mistake. Daniel, may I introduce Ava Salindi? Charmed, she said, extending her hand with the palm facing downward. My lady, Daniel said, finding his voice and his manners at last. He took her hand and bowed over it, feeling somewhat numb. Growing up, he had never given much thought to the curse of Matamor, or to those who allowed themselves to be affected by it. He had known some cursed people among the student body at Westfall, most notably Dell, but most spookies wore the small subdermal implants that kept the curse at bay. He was aware of androgynes, of course. They made up something like 20% of the city's population, and at Empire University the number had probably been closer to 30. An up-close transformation like this one, though, was the sort of thing you usually only saw in movies. For one thing, self-fitting clothes were expensive. Please, she said, stepping closer and putting a hand on his chest. Call me Ava. Don't waste your time, Ava, Victor said, clearly amused. Daniel's a teep. Get your leg over him and you'll be stuck in his head for the rest of your life. She took a step back, alarmed. She looked at Daniel questioningly, and he nodded, blushing furiously. Sorry, he said. It was a bitter irony he'd thought about far too often. He wasn't a strong enough teep for the hive to want him, but he had just enough power that it was impossible for him to have sex without entering a gestalt. While that made the experience doubly intense and intimate, it also meant that he could never have sex with a mundane safely. Mundies didn't have the ability to separate themselves again once their minds had merged, and it wasn't the sort of thing a teep could do for someone else. Ava pouted. Well, feck, she said, clearly disappointed. I suppose I'll have to make do with the eye candy, then. I'd ask to take a full body scan of you for a WorldNet avatar, but I suspect you'd rather not leave any records of your involvement in this. That would be best, Victor said dryly. Are you ready to get started? Ava adjusted her suit jacket and smiled, apologetic. Sorry, yes. Please, have a seat, and welcome. The four mercs had taken their seats by now, and were helping themselves to the appetizers. The teenaged girl looked up at Daniel as he approached then put her feet down and nodded toward the chair she'd been saving. He smiled at her and slid into the seat. Thanks, he murmured. Those guys are a little scary-looking. She twisted the corner of her lip into a quirky half-smile. You're not the only one who thought so, she said, her bright blue eyes sparkling with wry amusement. She put out a hand. Name's Callie Linder. Daniel Sharabi, he said clasping her hand briefly. Nice to meet you. Right back at ya. She reached over to one of the appetizer plates and grabbed a piece of fried calamari. She peered curiously at the crispy bundle of tentacles before popping it into her mouth. You're a runner, aren't you? Daniel asked. She nodded. And you're not. He blushed, embarrassed. 
Is it that obvious? Kinda yeah, she said, grinning. Don't sweat it. Everybody's gotta start somewhere. I'm getting the kindly old veteran routine from a teenager, Daniel thought. Great. Been doing this for a while, have you? he asked. Almost three years, she said. He blinked. How old are you? Eighteen. Daniel gaped. Callie saw his expression and snorted. Tuck your tongue back in, she said, grabbing another piece of calamari from the tray. I'm a street rat. We do what we gotta. At least I didn't have to turn prossy. Daniel blushed again. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to imply... well, anything, really. You obviously must know what you're doing, or you wouldn't be here. I'm just wondering how a fifteen-year-old runner managed to avoid getting herself killed. She shrugged. Just lucky, I guess. She winked, as if that meant something more than the obvious. But if so, Daniel didn't get the reference. Ava took a seat at the head of the table, and Victor sat down on her left, across from Callie. He and the runner nodded to each other, obviously they'd met before, and the meal began without fanfare. Daniel talked with Callie for most of that time. The girl was chatty and likable, and she seemed curious about telepaths in general, and his own life in particular. He didn't deny the existence of the Psy Collective, which was something of an open secret, but he avoided any discussion of creches or breeding cells, which the general public did not know about. Any mention of the telepaths' unusual personal lives would provoke questions about why they were so obsessed with having large numbers of children, and the answer wasn't likely to do anything good for Teep Mundy relations. So why are you taking this run? Callie asked. It doesn't sound like you want to make a career out of this. I don't. Daniel paused, weighing his words. My girlfriend's parents don't think I'm good enough for her. They want her to be with this other guy who's more talented, has more upward mobility. He shrugged. I'm trying to get enough money for us to run off and make a new life together. Callie grinned. Aw, that's so romantic. I hope it works out for you. Daniel gave her half a smile. Yeah, me too. After dinner, the plates were cleared away, and Ava stood to face the group. Thank you all for coming, she said. Our mutual employer is grateful for your assistance, and hopes that this will be a profitable venture for all of us. The ship bearing our intended cargo will be docking at Matthias Skyport tomorrow morning, so I want to make sure we're all clear on our respective duties before we begin. Victor? Victor gestured, and the maps and blueprints at the far end of the table floated up and spread themselves out over the available surface. Daniel could see now that they were diagrams of the Skyport and the surrounding area. Evan has spent the last year infiltrating the Skyport management, Ava said. His security clearance is high enough to get us through the checkpoint and into the restricted areas of the port. The rest of you will be wearing doppel charms and using the ID cards of off-duty employees. Won't work, one of the mercs said. A charm that strong will set off the alarms. Normally it would, yes, but one of the guards at the security checkpoint tomorrow is on our employer's payroll. He'll disable the alarms and let you through. What about the other one? Callie asked. There's always two guards at every checkpoint. 
Ava smiled wickedly and shifted into a seductive pose. I'll take care of that, she said. Callie smirked and nodded. Daniel felt pretty sure that Ava could distract just about any heterosexual male with a pulse. And on the off chance that the guard wasn't a hetero male, there was always Evan. Over the next half hour, Ava laid out the details of the plan. It seemed pretty straightforward to Daniel. The skyship was too big to offload its cargo directly into the bays of the skyport, so a group of deckhands would be sent up in a cargo tender to retrieve the ship's contents. Victor and Daniel would go with them, disguised as part of the group, and Victor would locate the client's parcel and guard it during the ride back down to the cargo bay, which the mercs would be responsible for securing against any outside interference. Once there, Victor would hand the parcel off to Callie, who would take it out of the skyport through the ventilation system and deliver it to its intended destination, a private security firm on the fourth level of the central borough. Victor, Callie, and the Mercs asked questions about various technical aspects of the mission, most of which went over Daniel's head. The trickiest part, from his perspective, would be Callie's exit through the ventilation ducts, which were a maze of narrow tunnels that seemed like it would be dangerous and disorienting to travel through. "'Do you have a computer model of this place?' Callie asked, eyeing the blueprints. I'd like some time to explore these tunnels in virtual before I do it for real. It's all on our server, Ava promised. We have a terminal with a spelljack downstairs. I'll show you where it is when we're done here. Take all the time you need. Callie nodded and leaned back in her chair. She was clearly thinking hard about the run, but she didn't look frightened. I would be if I had to go in there, Daniel thought. I wonder if that's claustrophobia or just common sense. Are there any other questions? Ava asked. Yeah, Daniel said, raising his hand. All eyes turned to him. Obviously you're expecting trouble on this run. Otherwise you wouldn't be paying us this kind of money. At what point in all this should we expect to start getting shot at? Ava's expression turned grave. Our employer's rivals are intelligent and resourceful. Interference is possible at any point during the run. I can tell you that the skyship itself has been thoroughly screened, both before and during the flight, so it's unlikely that there will be anyone waiting for you when you come on board. The most vulnerable point in the operation is the transfer from the ship to the cargo bay. No matter which pylon the ship docks at, there will be at least a hundred meters of empty air between the ship and the bay. Skimmer traffic is forbidden in that airspace, so a drive-by attack is unlikely, but there's a good chance that they'll try something aboard the cargo tender. So why not send more of us up there? Daniel asked, gesturing at the mercs. If we can't hold the cargo bay, it doesn't matter how many people we have on the tender, Victor said. There's a minimum of four Skyport security guards on duty at any cargo bay where a ship is coming in. We have to have enough people to replace all of them, or one of them will spot the fact that we're smuggling out one of the packages before customs arrives. Or, worse yet, said Ava, one of those additional security guards could be an enemy agent. Daniel nodded glumly. He understood the logic, even if he didn't like it. Any other questions? Ava asked, looking around the table. There were none. All right. Miss Linda, come with me. 
The rest of you try to get some sleep. Skids up in ten hours. And that's the end of Chapter 5. Come back next time, when Daniel, Victor, and their team embark on their mission. But they aren't the only members of the Psy Collective with their eyes on that mysterious package. Joan Didion said, The impulse to write things down is a peculiarly compulsive one, inexplicable to those who do not share it, useful only accidentally, only secondarily, in the way that any compulsion tries to justify itself. I suppose that it begins, or does not begin, in the cradle. So, let's see what I've done with my obsession this week. Here's your weekly writing report. This update covers the week of November 21st through November 27th. I wrote 6,034 words this week, over the course of 8.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 690 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 224 days without breaking my chain. This was the week of American Thanksgiving, and I made use of the time to get some extra writing done on Honor Bound. I'm now into Act 3, where my heroines have been driven apart by their own fears and by the effects of bad decisions made earlier in the story. Now Natasha will face the return of a threat from her past, while Honor faces a new danger, brought on by the political struggles in which she has become entangled. Separating them gives me the chance to explore other relationship dynamics for each of them. Between Honor and Delphinia, a noble scion she doesn't like but is being forced to work with, and between Natasha and Alex, the androgyne noble who has been courting Honor for most of the book. As they face the obstacles and dangers of this final act, Honor and Natasha will have to lean on these unexpected allies in order to win the day. I'm now in Chapter 32, and the manuscript is just shy of 88,000 words. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.